Hi, I'm Armand Olia. I'm a journalist and podcaster who was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. I spent the last few years as an advocate and activist raising awareness and acceptance about autism, which includes my current hosting gig on the YouTube series For the Community. For the past decade, I've tried through my actions and advocacy to not only move the needle on neurodiversity rights, but also help people in all forms embrace the difference. I have been more than lucky that there have been others to help me move it and embrace it. You can't get inclusivity without us. So I'd like to welcome you to the podcast that highlights the voices that help push the changes to a brighter, neuro-inclusive future. It's the perfect time to bridge the gap between the neurotypical and the neurodiverse. Welcome to the Autcast. I want to extend a warm welcome to those of you joining me, especially for this episode. In case you didn't listen to part one, I'd recommend stopping and listening to it now so you can catch up on who our amazing guest is. The condensed version, though, is that we are still talking with Wired Magazine writer and author of Neurotribes, Steve Silberman. We have already gone through so much, including the history of getting this work done, but there's still so much more fascinating conversation to go. So I recommend you sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. But before that, a bit of housekeeping ahead. If you haven't yet, subscribe and turn notifications on your platform of choice. We air on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Visit our website, www.theautcommunity.com. That's www.theautcommunity.com. Read the articles from our contributing writers. Drop a five-star rating and a comment, which would be highly appreciated. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Aut community. That's at the A-U-T community. You can also follow me on those platforms as well at Armon Olia. That's at A-R-M-O-N-O-W-L-I-A. With that being said, let's close out the season and finish off a fascinating history lesson. So we're going to just quickly shift gears a little bit. Obviously, Neurotribes has been out seven years. And since the publishing of that book, the world has changed. Perception of autism has changed. I actually just had, I had to write down a list last night just so that way I was 100% sure in terms of what I wanted to talk about. So for example, look at Autism Speaks going back on their vaccine stance, which they had from the moment they were founded because, and you mentioned this in your TED talk, um, the, uh, the Disneyland uh, epidemic of measles. Um, or even the decline of Asperger's syndrome and condemnation of Hans Asperger as a Nazi. Um, we're seeing um, steps up in... Pause, pause, pause. Hans Asperger was not a Nazi. He specifically refused to join the Nazi party. That's become a very uh, you know, widespread um, view of him, specifically because of the uh, research of this guy, Herwig Check who specifically withheld his research from me because he had some kind of agreement with the authors of a competing book called In a Different Key. We are still figuring out who Hans Asperger really was. And yes, he probably did do uh, uh, some truly terrible things. But at the same time, he and his Jewish colleagues, I mean, I would dare anyone to call his Jewish colleagues, Ani uh, Weiss Frankel, and uh, George Frankel, Nazis. They were Jewish. 
and they they were key in developing the concept of what we now call the spectrum. They called it the continuum, and they both Ani and uh, George, uh, as I talk about in neurotribes, had very very progressive and humanistic views of autism, which really prefigured neurodiversity. But what's interesting is that in the rush to uh, to both condemn someone who probably did uh, do terrible things with the Nazis and in the rush to make that other book financially successful, um, a sort of PR campaign that included Simon Baron Cohen, unfortunately, uh, was launched to, uh, to spread this view that Hans Asperger was a Nazi. He was not a Nazi. He was working for Nazis as I describe in great detail at Neurotribes. But the notion that Hans Asperger was a Nazi is not just unfair to him, it completely unra- erases the contributions of his Jewish colleagues, uh, George and Ani Frankel. You're 100% right. And to not just you, but also the, um, the listeners of the show, I apologize on that level. I was just reading down this list of things that were that were basically being stated, but I'm going to quickly go back to the questions if you don't mind. Um, so obviously with Asperger's syndrome, with autism speaks going back on the vaccination stance with um, representation being stepped up through people like Kayla Cromer, um, through good doctors, Sesame Street, through even music in a bad representation sort of re-sparking the conversation. You've had seven years to sort of think about um, sort of the impact of what's been going on. How's your perception of awesome changed from the time you published the book to right now when we're talking in this conversation? Well, so that's a great question. And some things have changed much for the better, I think, and some things have changed much for the worse. And I'll give you uh, examples of both. Um, the When I started writing Neuro... Sorry, when I started researching Neurotribes, it was very, very rare to see an autistic person quoted in an article in the mainstream press about autism. You almost never did. It was always parents talking about how miserable they were or people like the founders of Autism Speaks talking about the quote-unquote autism epidemic, which was a lie and a myth and a hoax. Um, And so you rarely heard from autistic people when a journalist was writing about autism. And uh, that was kind of like, you know, imagine, uh, you know, a thousand or 10,000 articles about feminism that quoted only men. And so one of the things that I started doing uh, when I was still writing Neurotribes is that if I got a, if I got a call uh, to be quoted in a story about autism, uh, you know, on the basis of the geek syndrome or my TED talk or whatever, I would always say, are you quoting autistic people in your article? You should think about it. Would you write an article about the civil rights movement and only quote white people? You would not. So call these people, and I'd literally give them numbers. Well, now there are not only autistic people being quoted in articles all the time, not only having their voices heard on uh, topics like uh, the, you know, Sia's music video, um, and many other topics as well, the future of public policy, for instance. You have autistic journalists like Eric Michael Garcia, author of a book that, uh, you know, is pretty much one of my biggest dreams was that someday an autistic person would write a history of autism from their perspective. And that's what Eric's book, We're Not Broken, is. Um, 
And in fact, uh, Eric and I are going to be doing an event together for the uh, Livermore Public Library on, I believe, I think it's March 10th. Um, uh, let me see. Anyway, um, yeah, we're doing an event together uh, at the Livermore Public Library online um, on March 10th. Um, is that true? Yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, Eric is a very prominent journalist, not just a prominent autistic journalist. He writes, he's written for the Washington Post and the Independent, and he's out there um, putting his, uh, putting the perspective of the autistic community onto, into the biggest, you know, mainstream media publications there are. That's a wonderful development. And the fact that the autistic community can no longer be counted on to be absolutely absent from stories. Now, if somebody puts out a video like music, they hear from the autistic community and they, they, they hear the, those voices are in the press. So that is a wonderful thing. What's not so good? What's not so good is that I hoped that my book would kill off the anti-vaccine movement, frankly. Um, I knew that there were some, uh, uh, you know, terrible people like, say, Donald Trump, who still believe that vaccines cause autism, but because there was so much uh, overwhelming scientific evidence against the notion that vaccines cause autism, I thought it would just fade away. And I hoped that I was making available uh, a ton of historical information that would completely, in a sense, cut the rug out from under them. Well, now, because of awful people like Trump and Robert Kennedy Jr. and Dale Bigtree and Andrew Wakefield, and these people are getting very rich uh, by um, uh, making these false claims and lying in public. Um, now, because of COVID-19, the anti-vaccine movement is having a huge resurgence. And this is a disaster. The GOP's ad adoption of an anti-vaccine um, perspective uh, such that they're now like repealing vaccine mandates against, you know, uh, measles and mumps. And we're going to have ge a generation of kids who are dying of illnesses that, you know, should have been uh, extinct years ago uh, because the GOP saw political advantage in uh, positioning themselves as anti-vaccine. And unfortunately, they have allies on the left uh, who come from a perspective that I understand, which is that, well, you can't trust the government and you can't trust big pharma. Well, you know, both of those things are true in some ways. I, uh, when I was a reporter for Wired, I wrote stories that were very critical about big pharma. Um, it was always amusing to me when neurotribes came out and people accused me of being a shill for big pharma. I literally saw a thread online somewhere that said, oh, big pharma must have financed the production of Silverman's neurotransmitter. You know, it's just completely, it's like QAnon. It's like completely ridiculous. You know, it was like I, I had to fight like hell to get, you know, my advance for that book. Um, but so now, unfortunately, we're almost in a worse position than we were before. Uh, in terms of the anti-vaccine movement, because now, you know, there are Facebook groups and public demonstrations and, you know, the world, I don't have to tell any, you or any of your listeners that the world is in a terrible place right now, but 
some of the best news is coming from the autistic com community in terms of how prominent their voices have become in the public discourse about autism. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, there are so many things, obviously, that could get better. I think only time will tell. But we're going to transition quickly also another thing. Like I mentioned, you're the first neurotypical guest in the history of this show. And one of the things that I know a lot of people in the community wonder is like, where is this, like, why are neurotypicals not getting the perception of what autism really is through their head? Like, what's missing? What, what, where's the disconnect? You've done research on this community. You, you've basically have interacted with this community, and you're a part of the neurotypical community as well. So where do you think the disconnect is? Well, I mean, you might ask, you know, why does this heterosexual community seem to not get gay people? You know, it's like, to me, like, I have to say, I have a different perspective. I've had so many neurotypical parents and, and otherwise um, contact me over the last seven years to tell me how neurotribes completely change their perspective towards their own children sometimes or towards their own spouse. Um, and, you know, I'm, I consider myself very lucky in a sense to have written a book that really, you know, as uh, the poet Gary Snyder uh, said about, uh, uh, you know, the best thing a poet can do is to, quote unquote, move the world a millionth of an inch. And I feel like I did move the world a millionth of an inch with neurotribes. So to me, um, it's not a completely, you know, a landscape of complete frustration. It's more like uh, it's more like a landscape of actually fairly rapid transformation in a good direction with some, you know, horrible people still, you know, still having the same views. And you have to remember that autism you know, as recently as 20 years ago, was framed as not just another way of being, but like a mysterious plague that had, you know, come out of vaccines or come out of poisoning the environment. And there are still people saying that, obviously, the anti-vaxxers who I mentioned earlier. I remember when I was writing Geek Syndrome, uh, everyone, you know, I was writing about um, how many people with autistic traits seem to be present in high-tech communities like Silicon Valley. Uh, and others all over the world, actually. And uh, after doing some research, it was clear to me that what was going on was genetic, was that um, if, you, if you have autistic traits uh, and, uh, you know, if you're into technology, and not, uh, I'm not saying that all autistic people are at all, but if you are into technology and you have autistic traits, in some ways they can be an advantage uh, to do certain jobs, uh, like um, very clear memory or the ability to focus for a long time or uh, not caring about, you know, hanging out at the bar with your buddies, really. Um, so, uh, you know, I wrote about that, but what people were telling me was, oh, my God, it's the vaccines or, oh, my God, it's, you know, the silicon and the chips or something like that. Or, oh, my God, it's too much screen time, you know. And uh, and you recently saw that uh, terrible trope uh, again recently where there was some really shoddy study about screen time and autism and you know i knew as soon as i read it that there would be a million headlines that were screen time causes autism and you know that just happened you know just in the last couple of weeks so 
you know, I wouldn't say that all neurotypicals are, are complete ableist bigots. You know, I would just say that what's happening is that there were so many decades of bad information and ableist nonsense and absolute lies about vaccines that many people were brainwashed more or less. Uh, and uh, also, you know, it takes a while for um, non-disabled people to understand what disabled people really uh, are facing. Uh, and that, you know, that's obviously happened with physical disability as well. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I try to stress in my talks, even beyond autism, is that the social model of disability is a much better way to proceed as a society than the medical model of disability. The medical model of disability uh, takes a, a kid who lives in a wheelchair and says, there's a problem with that kid. You know, if we can fix that kid, then they won't need a wheelchair. But the social model of disability says the, there's a problem with the world. And that problem is that kid can't get around in, in his wheelchair very easily. We should build ramps. We should build curb cuts. We should build accessible classrooms and bathrooms and offices and everything else. And so, you know, that the social model of disability, which came very much out of the disabled community, um, is, you know, taking a while to spread and, and take hold in the world. But it is, I believe, proceeding, and I've done whatever I can to help it advance. So one final thing I'm going to ask. Normally, I would ask a guest any pieces of advice for autistic people. However, we're going to flip the script a little bit, you know? So instead of any advice for autistic people, what is the biggest piece of advice for neurotypical people listening to this podcast that they can do if they don't know what, where to do to take the first step? My piece of advice would be listen to autistic people. Read books by autistic writers. Um, you know, there, there have been so many wonderful books in, in recent uh, years. Uh, see movies like The Reason I Jump which is a documentary based on the diary of a Japanese uh, autistic teenager. Uh, but it goes far beyond that and takes a cross-cultural view of autism in different cultures. Uh, also, there's, there was a wonderful film from Pixar called Loop. It's a short uh, that uh, had as the star a uh, black autistic woman character, which is absolutely revolutionary because black autistics are often ignored um, and women autistics are often ignored. Uh, and it was also played by an autistic voice actor. So it was good representation. So there's a lot going on. If you want to hear how autistic people feel about their own lives, which is obviously, you know, one of the perspectives that you want when uh, trying to understand autism, read and listen to autistic people. That's my advice. Ladies, gents, and non-binary audience members, thank you all so much for listening. Steve Silberman is truly a unique voice whose work and perspective is not only refreshing, but truly interesting to listen to. I am so thankful he was able to do this show and help close out the first half of this season. Thank you all so much for joining me for the first half of this season. We'll be off for a few months to refresh our minds and enjoy the summer, but I hope you guys will join us all again in October 
to close off Season 2 with four more guests, including a little surprise for the finale. Until then, if you haven't yet, subscribe and turn notifications on your platform. Visit our website, www.theautcommunity.com. That's www.theautcommunity.com. Read the articles from our contributing writers, drop a five-star rating and a comment, which would be highly appreciated. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Aut Community. That's at the A-U-T Community. You can follow me on these platforms as well at Armonolia. That's at A-R-M-O-N-O-W-L-I-A. I'm Armonolia. This has been the Autcast. Let's work together to embrace the difference. And I'll see you next time.